Human beings are built to worship. There's something in us that calls out from us to worship something. If we don't believe in and worship God, our hearts will naturally be drawn to worshiping something else. Whether it's some thing we have or some person and People will give their, the worship of their heart, they'll give it to money, they'll give it to possessions, they'll give it to a celebrity, they'll give it to gaining fame, they'll give the, their worship of their heart to gaining prestige, they'll give it to an ideology. As belief in the Bible wanes in the U.S., I've, I've seen increasing numbers make a political cause or social action the, the idol that they worship in their life. That's what they're given their life for. For many, politics has become their religion. We're built to worship something. We are starting a new series today. Um, on. We're just going to go through the, the letter, the book of First Thessalonians, and the title I gave the series is Ready for the Day, and that has three components. First of all is we're ready to wake up each day that God gives us and serve him and live for him. That's, that means ready for the day. It also means, though, that we're ready for the day and the times that we are in, what it looks like for us to follow Jesus in this day and age and the, the problems that we have in our culture. And we're, we're learning together. How do we follow Jesus in, in America in, in the 2020s? Um, it also means ready for the day when Jesus will return and set things right. And all of those three themes will, will arise as we go through first Thessalonians in this first chapter the first thing that seems to get emphasized is, and what we're going to talk about today, is how the Thessalonian believers, that the way they came to receive the message and how they turned from worshiping, they, they changed their worship from idols, meaning the Greek and Roman gods of their day, they changed from worshiping idols to serve the living and true God. That, that, that was such an amazing thing that that had become noteworthy. It had become a testimony throughout all of the, the, the area of Greece, Achaia and Macedon. That's basically the, the Greek heartland. And that it had become a witness to others, an example within the pagan world of, of what are we worshiping. So this morning, first we're just going to walk through the passage. I'm going to go through verse by verse, note some details in the text that, that we can understand from. Second, we're going to go back to Acts 17 and see how the church began in the first place. And then third, what does it mean for our day? How do we, what does it say about our worship and what do we have to turn to in order to follow Christ? So it begins with talking about the, the letter is written on behalf of three people, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And so Paul was the, the, the lead person, Paul the apostle, but he includes it sending, for, he uses we language, we, um, 
Sylvanus is another version for the word Silas. So if you go to Acts 17, it talks about Paul and Silas were the ones that brought the gospel to, to Thessalonia. Timothy is the younger man who's, who's working with Paul, and Paul eventually will send him out to, to be a, a, a pastor preacher to other areas. And they're sending this to the believers in Thessalonia. This is the Macedonian city of Thessalonica. And it is a major Roman city in kind of the northern Greek area. Uh, Macedon is northern Greece. And um, it's a, it, the address includes, it's the, uh, the church or the word is ecclesia, the assembly of the Thessalonians who are in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. It's the word ecclesia. Thank you. Is it? All right. I'd be fine, but thank you. Um, the, the, the church, it's the assembly of believers in Thessalonia who are tied in this, this worship. The, the, they, in the Greek world, they would use that same word for a lot of other, a public assembly. But it's those who assemble in their worship to God and in, in Jesus Christ the Savior. Moving on to verse 2. It talks about giving thanks and how they, how Paul had been praying for them, mentioning them always in his prayer, and remembering them in 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 his prayers. What what had happened is Paul and Silas had brought the gospel to Thessalonica and they had come to believe, and but they Paul and they had to leave the situ, We'll get into the situation later in the series, but they had to leave suddenly, and so they went away and they were concerned. Will these Thessalonian believers hang on in their faith. And so they've been praying for them. And now what had happened is they had sent Timothy back to check on this church. And Timothy had come back with a good report. They're continuing in their faith. It says they're continuing in their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love are the signs that they're continuing to walk with Jesus, right? They, they're growing in their faith. They're doing the work that it takes to grow in knowledge and understanding of God. But their, their faith just doesn't lead them to do nothing. They do labors of love. They're putting it into action by, by working at the, the loving others and loving God. And then they're holding on through difficulties. The word steadfastness is hupomene. One time um, I was at a, a camp and a guy had a, a big old tattoo and it was in Greek and it was hupomene and um, just to brag for a minute, like he's like, oh, do you know what that means? So yeah, it means endurance. It's like, oh, dude, no one knew that before. So it was kind of cool. Like, but hupomene, that's always stuck out to me, that word of endurance, perseverance in the faith, steadfastness. They would face difficulties. If we follow Jesus, we are going to face adversity and opposition. We need steadfastness in the faith. And so Paul is celebrating the fact that they did not give up, even though that they had to leave him. Going on to verse 4. It says, we know, brothers, God, God must have chosen you. That you are his because we saw the way the gospel came to you. It came not only in word alone. In other words, it wasn't just because I was a brilliant teacher that you came to believe. Right? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying it's not just in word. You didn't just hear the message and believe. 
It came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The message came in power. They didn't just hear it and, and dialogue with the word. They saw it. They saw God's power. We don't know the specifics of what that means, but they knew it was true. And then they felt it in their hearts, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That ultimately is what leads people to believe. Us preachers would love to think it's our brilliant words that lead people to faith in Jesus. It is not. People need to to see it in action, to see God's power And even more, they need to feel it in their heart as God's spirit convicts and leads them into the truth. He says, because of the way they came to believe, it says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece. And the the way he says this is kind of, says, is not only there, he says, the word has sounded forth even other places. In other, and Paul's saying, I didn't have to tell people about your faith. In fact, people came up to me talking about how, how you turned from God, uh, turned from idols to God. That their, their way that they came to faith and the change that they made was so momentous that it caught the attention all around that Greek world. That was unheard of that someone would switch from worshiping the idols of their society to worshiping something else, to worshiping the true and living God. The one, you know, the idols in the the temples were statues, right? They weren't really alive. There were no gods on top of Mount Olympus, but they were worshiping the living God who is alive in heaven. And it goes on to say, and they were waiting for his son to return, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Those idols, people would pray to them because they would hope that they would fix something in their life. You'd come bringing a sacrifice. And if one, you'd, you'd try one God, and if that God didn't give you the answer, you might go to the temple, you know, down the street to worship uh, Neptune instead. Maybe he will give you what you want. Or you'd go to Asclepius, the God for healing, if, he, if that's what you were looking for, uh, we worship one God, true in heaven, and we're waiting for the day when Jesus will come to set things right. He is alive. He is real. And we know that because the Holy Spirit has brought that conviction upon our hearts. That is the, the gist of what Paul is saying in, in this, this chapter. Let's, let's jump to Acts 17 because it helps to see what happened and how the gospel came to the city in the first place. It begins in Acts 17.1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So when it speaks of they, it's Paul and Silas, and they probably had a team of others, though Paul was the lead evangelist, leading the team. And, And when Paul went places in ministry... He was seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance, when to stay and when to move on, where to go next. And sometimes his path would be confusing because he'd say, I, I went, I, my, in my plans, I'd went to go somewhere, but, but the Holy Spirit said no. 
Instead, it sent us a different direction. And so here it says it, he goes through two cities and maybe didn't, you know, only stayed there a night or so to get supplies. But only when he came to Thessalonica does God lead Paul to, to stay and try to develop a ministry. Um, it says in verse 2, and Paul went in, as was his custom. He had a strategy that he used. It says, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So, so Thessalonica had a major synagogue. That was one of the marks in the city. They had a strong Jewish community who would gathered and formed a synagogue and they were regularly, you know, they would worship um, there. And so Paul came to the synagogue and because Paul had been trained under the famous rabbi, the noted rabbi Gamaliel, that that gave him an open door. And so that's maybe the strategy both Paul was doing, but the Holy Spirit was guiding him on. And so it says he, for three Sabbath days, they, the Sabbath was a Saturday, not Sunday, he would went in there and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He would take what they believed, the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, the law, and the prophets, and he, he would teach and explain within them. And this is, it says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this is Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. He explained to them from their scriptures, the Messiah and how Jesus filled the role of the Messiah and moreover, how he gave his life. What we talked about last week, the story of Jesus is, is woven throughout the whole Bible. And Paul, because of his background as a, as a training and rabbi, he was able to take that, those, that Old Testament scriptures and show how it ultimately points to Jesus. And, and then you get to verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Some of them saw what he was talking about and said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah that they were waiting for. So some of the Jewish background people came to faith in Jesus, the Messiah through, through what Paul had taught, but only some, maybe a, a less than a majority. But then note what it says next. Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So there were only a small number of Jewish background people who came to believe, but a great many of non-Jewish, Greek, it says they were devout, that the, they're described as God-fearers. They were Greeks who had, had been coming, attending the synagogue because they were starting to believe in the one true God and creator. In other words, through the synagogue, they were learning part of the story. They were learning about God. And, and, here, and some of them, it says, were, were the leading women. They were educated women in the society who were studying and learning, and they were seeing it all. And when they heard Paul, they saw the truth of what he was preaching. You see, God had pre-planted a witness in Thessalonica long before he had set up the time when, when Paul could come and bear witness to Jesus. God is sovereign over history. And long before Paul ever got there, 
there was what's called the diaspora of the Jewish people. The Jews technically were people who lived in Judea. That's what Jews meant. Someone who lives in Judea. That's the area right around Jerusalem, right? But because of all the battles and persecution and opposition, Jewish believers would spread out. And so that there were groups of Jews in every major city in the Roman Empire, as well as other places in the East and and all of that. And, And they still believed in what they had in the scriptures. They still believed in the the God who created the world. They believed in a God who spoke. They believed in the miracles of Elijah and Moses and all of that. And they taught that. And so bearing witness within their culture, some of the Greeks were like, this makes sense, right? They, They knew the stories about Zeus and Apollo and you know, that they carried the sun around the sky and like they started to see that doesn't make sense. And so God had pre-planted this witness that got them halfway there. And it set up, it opened a door for Paul and Silas and the rest of them when they came. And it was that group, that group of God fears, the Gentile Greek God fears that became the core group of the church in Thessalonica. Those are the ones who turned because in their culture they had grown up worshiping the idols and the Greek and Roman gods and now they were worshiping the true and living God, the one who sent his only son. And that was such a major statement that Paul says this has become an example throughout all of this Greek world. All over the place. People are talking about how you guys made such a switch, how you changed who you're worshiping. Um, that's the, the, the power of worship. You see, it's vital that we worship because we're going to worship something. And it's vital for ourselves. We need this regular time where we set the focus of our heart and attention upon the one God through the word he's given us. We're going to give our heart to something. If we are not worshiping our Lord, we're going to start to worship other things. But not only is it needed for us, it's also needed as a witness throughout the world. This is why I'm so glad we're outside. I know it's hot. I'm so sorry for that. But I think it's so important that, that we're a little more visible on this morning and for this month as because we, what we worship is an example, as a bears witness throughout the world that we live in. And, and it's a testimony to other people that, that we have decided that Jesus Christ alone is, is the only one worthy of our worship. We sing to him. We have become persuaded Through the word, but not the word alone. We've come to be persuaded because we've seen his power. We've seen it in action. And we've become persuaded because we felt it in our heart as the Holy Spirit has brought conviction into our life. And so we've decided to say yes to Jesus and to worship him and him alone. What I want to close with is, is thinking about how in Roman and Greek times, their idols that they were worshiping were, you know, statues and temples. 
And that's what they look to to help them for life. The idols that we, we see in our culture today are different. In modern times, we have um, idols that we might worship in our hearts that you don't do through religious rituals, so we don't always see it. But here's a definition for an idol. An idol is anything other than God we trust to make us happy or secure. Anything we're looking to, to make our life work, at the, and anything we want to put at the center of our heart and life, the things we trust in to make our life go better, to go the way we want, the things that when we're sad we look to to make us feel better, those all have the potential to become idols within our heart, idols that we're not just receiving from God, but things that we begin to, to give the worship of our heart towards. And when we do that, they sneak into our heart and, be, and gain a greater prominence within our life. They, they show up oftentimes in relational conflict. Let me read one other passage this morning from James 4. And it's, it's written to Christians. And it's talking about how they have so much conflict in their midst. And it, note where it says the conflict comes from. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, what, what's happening is, is there are idols hidden in our, in our heart that, that become so prominent in our life they lead us into conflict. It, it, it starts, as it says, with desire. All idols begin with a desire, right? I would really like to have blank. So it may be desire for even a good thing, but I would really like to have this. But that, that desire becomes more and more prominent. And then it becomes a demand, the desire changes to, I must have this. I must have this or I will not be happy. I must have this or my life is not going the right direction. I must have this or I'm going to be sad or, or, or disappointed. And so then demand moves to disappointment. And we lash out at others when our demands are not met. I must have means you must give it to me. And when they don't give it to me, it says, you did not give me this. I'm now disappointed. I'm hurt. Because the idol that we're worshiping is not being fed. And then that can lead to judgment. Right? We're frustrated at not getting our desire. And so we condemn. It is your fault I'm not happy because you didn't give me what I wanted. This is how idols work in our heart. They turn us to, to, to blame and seek against others and finally it turns to from so it starts with desire to demand to disappointment to judgment to finally punishment being hurt and angry we strike back because you did not give me what i wanted i will stop talking to you i will avoid you i will hold a grudge against you that is what james is talking about what's happening in the church among christians when idols gain a foothold deep within our hearts. Have you ever had times where you're 
angry and you really can't say why, or where you're deeply sad and you just don't know why, is it possible in those moments there's some idol in your heart? You see, our hearts are idol factories. We'll, we'll create things to worship. You know, if nothing else, we'll worship some football team on, you know, Sunday afternoon and, and cheer and scream for them. We'll, we'll find some celebrity or something that we will give the heart of our worship to. There's really only one solution for any of this. We need to turn from all idols and give the worship of our heart to Jesus Christ and him alone. He alone is worthy. He alone can fill the depths of, of emptiness within us. He alone can set things right within our inner being. We need to repent, which means turn from. We need to turn from those other idols and turn towards the Savior. We need to replace, to turn and worship the true and living God as we do. And when we do and we need to do that regularly together. And Jesus gave us a way of picturing that of knowing that 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 when we put our trust in him alone, he will bring a satisfaction to our inner being. And so as we close worship, we're going to move towards sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And what is that saying? It's saying he is the, the bread that brings satisfaction to my soul. His blood is the one thing that can cleanse us from the hard feelings, the guilt and the shame and the anger that we have. We need both his body and his blood and, and then we can experience the true joy and peace of Christ. So as we, we come to share together in the Lord's Supper, I'm going to allow a time. We, we always, before we share together, we we examine ourselves because we know we want to come with hearts made clean. And so I want to invite you to, first of all, get your communion cups ready. Um, please wait to partake until we're, we're, I, I do the prayer of consecration. But you can have those handy. But I'm going to invite you to first um, pray silently, pray before the Lord and ask, are there any idols you've given your worship to? Are there other things that you've turned to to, to to seek the satisfaction of your life? Let's examine ourselves before we come to the table this morning.